Hey, Mary. Good morning, Graham Emanuel. Is God with us? Amen. So as you guys know, I'm from the East Coast, and they do church a very specific way on the East Coast, out in the hills, all right? And I'm going to bring a little bit of that to us this morning, because what I want to do, I think we need to wake up a little bit, and we need to remember that we worship a God who is good, and we worship a God who is good all the time. So back in the East Coast, what we would always do is when the person would come up front, when the pastor would come up and say, God is good, everyone else would respond. And then the pastor would say all the time, God is good. So let's do that, and I want it to be loud, okay? So let's see how loud we can get, how much we can praise God with the spoken word. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, that's what I like to hear. Hey, before we dive into uh, our time in God's Word, I do have one more announcement uh, that I would like to give, and the announcement actually has to do with our youth ministry. You guys know that we have been putting a lot of prayer, not just into our youth ministry right now, but also in the future of youth ministry and the person that God is preparing at this very second to take that position. So this update is going to be twofold. The first half of the update is I just want to let you know what's going on in youth ministry on Sundays and on Wednesday nights. God has really been working during these times. I meet with the youth staff every other week on Thursday evenings for a Bible study. We're going through 1 Peter right now. And also to talk about how ministry is happening during those two, uh, during those two times. Wednesdays and Sundays. We had Qdoba even last Thursday. It was an awesome time. And during these meetings, some of the things that I have been hearing from our youth staff who have really stepped up in this season are things like interaction with the teens during small groups. They're saying that right now in this season, God is having more uh, input and more spiritual discussions coming from the teens in small groups after a message than they've had in a long time. And they're praising God for that. Uh, Something else that we're seeing is we're seeing relationships being built between the youth leaders and between the teenagers. And we also see a regular preaching of the gospel. On Sunday mornings, we have Gordon Strupp teaching verse by verse through uh, the letter of James to the Christians scattered abroad. He's going through that book right now. On Wednesdays, I was teaching for a month uh, through the book of John, through the gospel of John talking about who Jesus is, what the gospel is. And now the elders were actually on rotation right now, teaching on Wednesday nights. And so that way, the teenagers here at our church on Wednesdays, they get to know who our elders are. And every elder on Wednesday night, we've almost gone through a complete cycle at this point. They've shared their testimony. They've opened up to a passage of scripture, and they've ended by sharing the gospel. And that's been happening every week from our eldership. And I just want to let you know that God is working through that. God is using the people of our church. He's using the young adults. He's using the elders. He's using the adult staff. He's using them in a powerful way to impact teens during this tough season. And even though it's been a tough season, God is making it a good season in the lives of these teenagers. We still have regular, uh, solid attendance happening at both of those events. So I just want us to praise the Lord for that. And truly thank him for his provision. Uh, When we get ready to pray for the sermon, I I want us to be praying in thanks for that specifically. 
The second half of the update does concern our youth pastor search. There's going to be a more detailed, more formal update that's going to come sooner rather than later, where we're going to lay out the search process, where we're, where we're going to announce who's on the search committee. We're going to be talking about all those things, but right now we just want to let you know that we have been working uh, as elders, we have been working on the preliminary steps of the search process. We now have a candidate profile that we have made. Uh, we have made a job description, and we have determined a list of people that we want to ask to be on the youth pastor search committee. So those people, some of them, they've given us responses. Some are still praying about it right now. Once we confirm exactly who's going to be on that group, then we will be able to announce it to you all. But we are working on this. Uh, the elders have been working very hard on this, and we believe that just as God is working in our congregation right now to prepare for the next youth pastor, we also believe that there is another man who we, we may not even know yet that God is also working in right now to prepare him to serve and shepherd at this church. So there are a lot of reasons to be praising God right now in our youth ministry at GEBC, but there's also a lot of reasons to be seeking God and seeking for him to reveal his will to us in this search process. So like I said, there will be a larger update in, in the times ahead as we are able to give it to you. But we just want to let you know that good things are happening in the youth ministry and things are also happening in our search for the next youth pastor. So keep praying for those things. Youth ministry has not been forgotten, not by us and certainly not by God. So let's pray now that God works through his word as we transition to worshiping him through scripture. But also, let's pray that God continues to do a good work in our youth ministry, that he gives perseverance and strength and encouragement to our youth staff, and that he also gives us wisdom as we seek out the next youth pastor at Grand Emmanuel Baptist Church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is your church. It is the body of Christ. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to any pastor or any elder. It doesn't belong to any congregant. It belongs to you. And we get to be members of it, Lord, and we thank you for that. We get to be servants of it, and we thank you for that too, Lord. Lord, we lift up specifically our youth workers right now. The, the men and women who are investing their time and their energy and, and their spiritual fruit that you are working in them to benefit and disciple middle schoolers and high schoolers. Lord, I pray that just as you work through your word on a Sunday morning here in worship service, that you will also work through your word on Wednesday nights and on Sunday mornings in youth service. And that as a result of working through your word, you will bring about life change in middle schoolers and high schoolers. That you will bring about salvation, that you will bring about sanctification and spiritual growth. And Lord, we also ask for perseverance and wisdom as we pursue our next youth pastor for your church, that you will work in his life right now, that you will work on his heart, that you will spiritually prepare him and his family for this transition that you have before him, and that in your timing, by your grace, you will reveal your will to us in that. May we praise you and love you more as a result of what you have to share in your word. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in 325 AD, there was an event in church history called 
the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea is considered the first church council in Christian history. These aren't the apostles. The the Council of Nicaea was not, it shouldn't be considered as a formal uh, adding of scripture or, or anything with the authority of Christ. We can understand it like we would understand a church conference today. These were church leaders, about 300 of them, from all over the known world as far west as Spain, and as far east as India. And they came together in the middle of the Roman Empire, not too far from the city of Colossae, to discuss some of the heresies that were springing up in the church over the past couple hundred years. And one of the primary heresies that they were hoping to deal with that they were going to come together for and decide what does the Bible say about these theological issues was who was Jesus. These men, these church leaders that you see on the screen, they came to a town called Nicaea to figure out who Jesus was according to God's word. And the reason for that is because in early Christian history, perhaps even as early As the New Testament age, when Paul was writing to the Colossians himself, there sprang up this idea that Jesus was never actually a man, but just the appearance of a man. That he wasn't actually the physical image of God, but he was just an apparition of God. He wasn't actually born of a woman, he just appeared to be born of a woman that he was a spirit who just gave the impression, kind of like a hologram, of being a man. This kind of heresy, sometimes we call it Gnosticism, which maybe you've heard of before. Another term for it would actually be Docetism, D-O-C-E-tism. The view that Jesus as the image of God was just a projection of God, an apparition, not the actual physical image or imprint of God himself in human form. That was one of the major heresies that the Council of Nicaea wanted to deal with. And one of the ways that they decided to combat this heresy, very well-intentioned, was to focus on the humanity, the physical nature of Jesus, through pictures and signs. So, for example, they decided that in order to remind everyone that Jesus was a real person, born of an actual woman, they started putting an emphasis on Mary. And to remind each other that Jesus was an actual man who died a real physical death on the cross, they would start making a sign of the cross with their hands. They would even start making symbols and little crosses that they could carry around for themselves. They would make pictures of Jesus. They would make pictures of Mary with Jesus. And they did these things in order to focus on the humanity of Jesus, to combat this heresy. And many people ask me, Pastor Stephen, how did Christianity turn into the Roman Catholicism that we see today? That's partly how. A well-intentioned desire to understand Jesus as the image of God but in doing so, turning him into merely nothing more than another image. And we see that that is a trend that exists all throughout church history. 
again and again, people want to diminish the role of Jesus. In about 500 AD, there was a man called Muhammad who created a new Christian religion that de-emphasized the role of Christ, where instead of being God was merely just another prophet. Many of us probably have friends or maybe even family members who belong to the so-called Church of Latter-day Saints. Mormons who, again, they believe that Jesus was just another created being, another created man who ascended to God, who ascended to deity, that other people maybe can do the same if they follow his example, but merely just another created being. Again and again, we see this emphasis, we see this sinful trend in the world of de-emphasizing the person of Jesus. And you might think, okay, well, that's all well and good for Roman Catholics to do that, and Muslims to do that, and Mormons to do that. We know that they're wrong, but let's look at ourselves. Even Protestant Christians can de-emphasize the person of Christ, by turning him into a buddy, by turning him into a friend. Instead of Jesus being the image of the invisible God, we like to make Jesus the image of ourselves. Jesus is my homeboy, we'll see t-shirts say. Jesus, he's my friend. He's always going to be there for me. He's always going to be that person, that shoulder to cry on. We hear those songs where we sing about Jesus almost as if he's a boyfriend. We want to characterize Jesus as this safe and cuddly idea of a person that we wish our father was or we wish our boyfriend was or we wish our friends and family were and we diminish him from the actual image of the invisible God to just an imprint of what we would like for ourselves. I want us to reflect and think about the ways that we devalue the person of Christ. Because last week we looked at perhaps one of the most important verses in the New Testament. Where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But we can't forget the second half of that verse. Because so often we look at Jesus being the image of God. And just like the Council of Nicaea, just like the Roman Catholics, just like the Muslims, just like the Mormons. We make him merely another image. We make him a lyric in a song. We make him a picture on the wall instead of the all-powerful, mighty creator who created the heavens and the earth and who wants to know and forgive and redeem us. Which is why Colossians chapter 1.15 is not a verse as short as it is that we can look at in just one Sunday. We have to spend two Sundays looking specifically at what it says about Jesus because the first half of Colossians 1.15 focuses on the humanity of Jesus while the second half of Colossians 1.15 focuses on the deity of Jesus. And neither one is more important than the other. Both are equally true and equally necessary to understand the true person of Jesus. So I want you to turn with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where we are going to focus today not just on how Jesus is the way that the invisible God was made visible, but the importance of Jesus himself. 
how Jesus is the image of God, but that he is greater than all other images. He is greater than all created things. So as you turn with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, what we're going to find is the big idea for the second half of this verse this morning is that when Paul says to the Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, the big idea is that Jesus is of first importance. That's, can, that's how we can understand that word, firstborn. When it says that Jesus is the firstborn, Paul is meaning that Jesus is of first importance. And by unpacking the meaning of that word, firstborn, a word that is going to have immense meaning for the Colossians, a word that had immense meaning for the Jewish people, but not so much for us Americans today in the 21st century, we are going to see the importance of Christ And even more than that, we're going to understand exactly how God wants us to know him through Christ. We're going to have a blueprint for how to worship God in the person of Christ by understanding him as the firstborn. Because this has been one of the most abused and misunderstood phrases in all of Scripture. It has literally caused new denominations and religions to spring up that deny the person of Christ, by turning him into just merely a person. So today we're going to unpack what it means that Christ is the firstborn. And ultimately what all of this is going to mean is that Christ is of first importance. So the first heading that you can write down, the first outline, is that by calling Jesus Christ the firstborn, Paul is making it clear that Jesus as the firstborn existed before creation. That's your first outline. That firstborn means existed before creation. It does not mean that Jesus was the first created thing to exist. The emphasis is that when all things were created, Jesus was already there. As modern Western thinkers, our language, our culture tends to be very chronological. It's it's how we think. First this happened, then this happened, then that happened. And when we hear the word firstborn, we tend to think of it as this was the first kid to be born, then the second kid to be born, then the third kid to be born. That's not how ancient cultures talked, and it's not how they understood time and um, describing reality. The emphasis was not so much on chronology as it was on aspect, a spatial existence. What I mean by this is that when someone was called the firstborn, it was not so much describing that this was the first person to come about, but the firstborn was the person who was already there when everybody else came into existence. The firstborn was the first person who was present. He was the person who was around when everything else came into being. When the other kids came, the firstborn was already there. This understanding of firstborn should then be understood as spatial, not necessarily chronological. Before the creation of the world, Jesus as the firstborn was there. He wasn't the first created thing to come about. 
That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus is firstborn over all creation. Jesus himself described himself in this way. In John chapter 17, verse 5, and in John chapter 17, verse 24, we see examples of this. He's praying to the Father. He says, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before the world existed, Jesus had glory alongside the Father. He was already around. We see this also in verse 24. Father, I desire, this is Jesus speaking, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So instead of Jesus, when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that doesn't mean that he is on the same platform or the same level as all other created images. Before everything else came into existence, Jesus was already there and he was sharing in the same glory that the Father himself had. Perhaps most famously, John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 also makes this clear. Describing Jesus as the image of God, as the wisdom of God personified. It says that in the beginning was the word. But Proverbs 8 says that when God created the world, he also created wisdom. John is saying that this kind of wisdom goes deeper than that. That the real wisdom, Christ himself, he was in the beginning with God. And he was God. Verse 2 makes that clear. When God spoke the world into existence, Jesus was already around. So because of that, that makes him of first importance. That doesn't make him just another created thing. He was already there. He was never created. Even when he was born, he wasn't created by human means. He was miraculously begotten. He was given from heaven heaven itself and conceived miraculously in Mary. Everyone else has been created by proteins and DNA. Jesus was begotten and given from heaven. He was never created. Let's go to the second outline. The second point, when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn, he is emphasizing that by firstborn, it means that he is not just before creation, he is also superior to all of creation. And the reason for this is because the context of a firstborn in ancient culture meant that that person was more important than all of his younger siblings. And as someone who was the firstborn of four kids, I like to call this the good old days. That's when you guys were supposed to laugh. You guys must be a bunch of middle kids and and young kids. Maybe all the older kids are going to be in the second service. By being the firstborn, that firstborn child was deemed as more important, more significant in terms of the family, in terms of leadership, than other siblings. We see this play out in Genesis. Again and again, there is this emphasis on the firstborn. Like in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4. I know the text is kind of small, but you can look at uh, these references and write them down and look them up if you want. In Genesis 4.4, Abel, he provides his sacrifice to the Lord, and it says that God deemed it as worthy because Abel gave the firstborn of his livestock. 
We see also in Genesis 19 and uh, 19 verse 31 and Genesis, Genesis 48 verse 18 and even Genesis 49 verse 3, we see that when there's genealogies, these people are having multiple kids, but they only mention the firstborn. We see that there's this special uh, emphasis that's placed on the firstborn as being of most importance in terms of the family. Genesis portrays this really well. In fact, the Hebrew word for firstborn in the Old Testament occurs many times. Most of the times that it occurs, it's actually referring to animals because it's talking about the sacrificial system and God's demand that his people give him the best. And the way that they would describe the best was as the firstborn. So as a result, by calling Jesus the firstborn over all creation, it's making clear that everything you see, the mountains, the moon, the stars, they may be nice. They may show the attributes of God, but Jesus is greater than them all. He's not only greater in importance, he's also greater in the fact that he more effectively reveals who God is than Mount Rainier does. Those things are more like the aroma of the attributes of God. Jesus is God in human flesh. So by understanding Christ as the firstborn, it makes it clear that even though he is a physical man, that he was there before all of creation, and he is greater than all of creation. Let's go to the third point. The third point that we see here is that by calling Jesus the firstborn, firstborn means representative of the Father. This part is so important because, again, in our culture, we tend to think of father-son relationships in terms of senior and junior. We look at names of companies, and it's going to be so-and-so and sons. The idea that the father is at the top, the son is at the bottom, this lesser second version of the father which can also influence, unfortunately, the way that we see Jesus. That because we see Jesus and call him the Son of God, we think that Jesus is somehow secondary to God. That Jesus is almost God, or that he's a younger version of God, or he's a slightly less powerful version of God. If God is the superhero, then Jesus is the sidekick. And that is a dangerous way to think about Jesus. Because in fact, God wanted to make it clear that who he was was completely and adequately revealed in the person of Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 makes it also clear that the complete radiance of God is imprinted on Jesus himself, that he is the image of this invisible God. Therefore, as the firstborn, he is representative of the Father which is exactly how father-son relationships were understood in this culture. That a son was considered to be the ambassador of the father. We see the New Testament, uh, it, it, it describes this. We see in Luke, for example, in Luke chapter 20, verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. This is from the parable of the vineyard and the workers and the owner of the vineyard who keeps sending servants to tell the workers what to do. 
And they don't listen to all these people that the owner sends. So he then says, well, I'll send my son. Perhaps they will respect my son because there was an understanding that the son represents the father. And you may remember at the end of that parable, what do they do to the son? They actually kill him. And by killing the son, the implication is that they are killing the owner. They're sending that message of, if you were here, we would kill you too. Being the son of the father meant being representative of the father. And in the same way, Jesus, being the son of God, was understood to be representative of God himself. John chapter 5 shows this. Look at what John chapter 5 verse 18 has to say. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, referring to Jesus. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Look at that next line. Making himself equal with God. So by Jesus calling himself the son of God, everyone else understood that claim to mean that by being the son of God, you are claiming to be equal with God. You're claiming to be a representative of God. You, you are call, you're calling yourself the very essence, the same flesh and blood, so to speak, of God himself. And Jesus could make that claim because that's exactly who Jesus was. He wasn't the son of God in the sense that he was second to God. He was the son of God in the sense that he was representative of God. He was the flesh and blood, so to speak, of God. If you were to look at the son, you see the father, which is why Jesus himself says later in John that he who has seen me has seen the father. Being the firstborn means being equal in representation of the Father. It does not mean that, we are, that he is secondary to the Father. We got two more here. Let's look at the fifth point. I'm sorry, the fourth point. The firstborn means also loved by the Father. Quickly, let's look at a few verses. Exodus chapter 4, Hosea 11 verse 1, Jeremiah 31 9. What all these verses have in common is that in the Old Testament, God would express his love for the Israelites by calling them his son. Israel, in the Old Testament, used to be called the son of God. God would refer to the Israelites as his son, not just as his children, but collectively as a nation, he would say, you are my son, to show his love for them, to show his care for them to show the special connection that he has with them. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, when Jesus is born and his parents escape to Egypt, Matthew actually quotes Hosea 11, verse 1, and shows that this kind of relationship that God described as having with Israel as his beloved son was actually a shadow, something pointing forward to the fact that God's actual son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, would come into the world to redeem Israel. This uh, circles back to what was already claimed about Jesus in Colossians 1.13, where this son, this redeemer, is called God's beloved, one who is loved by God. Why does this matter? Because if Jesus is God's loved son, and if Jesus is our substitute on the cross, then that means when Jesus died, God punished him as if it was us. But that so someday when we die and stand before the Father, because Christ is our substitute, God will also love us as if we were the Son. 
his substitution for us goes two ways in that regard. God punished him for our sin, but we will also share in the Father's love because of his love for Jesus. We have him as our substitute in that regard, not just for our punishment, but also the substitute of God's love for us. Let's go to the fifth point. Jesus, being the firstborn in Colossians, means that he also, as a firstborn, inherits all of creation. Deuteronomy 21 made it clear that the firstborn received a double portion of all things. That was the person who would inherit the name and the honor and the possessions of the Father. What has Jesus inherited at this point? Someday he's going to inhabit all the heavens and the earth when he comes back the second time. But in the meantime, what Jesus has inherited is the resurrected body. Elsewhere in the New Testament, and you can see the examples up here, Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead. That he's the first one to resurrect in this eternal physical body that is glorified yet still physical, and that is going to be similar to the resurrected body that we receive one day. That just as Jesus was resurrected, just as he inherited that resurrected body in eternity in the presence of the Father, so too will we receive a similar body. We too will be resurrected because he was resurrected first. And then finally, the sixth point, moving a little quickly here. Finally, by calling Jesus the firstborn, it also means that he rules over creation. The firstborn is the one who rules He's the one who has authority on the rest of the family. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, by being called the firstborn, is shown to be the one and true king that we should honor and worship and glorify. Because he is the one that will someday rule this earth as well as the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll see even in the next slide, you'll see some cross cross-references there. Psalm 89, Revelation 1, verse 5, and Genesis 49, verses 8 and 10. And as we close, I guess the question is, is how does all of this actually impact our life? What impact does this truly have on the way that we live? It means that if we truly want to know God, If we truly want to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with him, to please him, we can only do that through the person of Jesus Christ. We cannot do that in any other way. Stay away from churches that emphasize the spirit over the person of Jesus. Stay away from churches that emphasize musical worship over the proclaiming of God's word. Stay away from churches that put the focus on you rather than Jesus Christ. Stay away from churches that don't put the absolute emphasis on the work of Christ on the cross in his resurrection on the third day. It's impossible to know God apart from Jesus Christ, but it's also impossible to please God apart from Jesus Christ. Therefore, the way that we emphasize Christ in our life is, number one, by seeking him in his word, The word is the revelation of Christ himself. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us. But it also means not forsaking being present where the body of Christ is. And that's here in the local church.
Christ physically is seated at the right hand of God, but spiritually he is present in the body of believers. Therefore, make that significant in your life. Make church a priority in your life. Seek God both in his word and as well in the fellowship of believers. That is the only way to know God and to please him, by making Christ preeminent in your life. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for making yourself known to us in the image of your physical son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, born under the law, as Paul says in Galatians 4.4. But Lord, thank you also for not just sending us any man, not just sending us another prophet, but sending us the prophet, the priest, Jesus Christ, who is completely full of your glory and your deity, yet somehow in human form. We thank you for that miracle, Lord, for that incredible mystery that you gave us of the humanity and deity of Christ. Lord, may you remind us that we should make your son Jesus preeminent in our life, that he should have first importance in our life. And teach us through your word, through the fellowship of believers, how to know you better by sharing in the death and resurrection of Christ on the cross by sharing vicariously in that reality in our lives as we put to death sin in our life and live unto resurrected life. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, the firstborn. Amen. All right, let's live by giving glory to God through his firstborn, Jesus Christ. Go in peace.